You're listening to Rashkin Report. You're listening to WSUW 91.7 FM in Whitewater, Wisconsin, The Edge. This is Rashkin Report, and I'm your host, Yuri Rashkin. I'm excited to welcome to the program today Paul Gobble. This program features uh, people who are specializing and know a lot about the topic of Russia and uh, the way that Russia relates to the world. Sometimes these people live in Russia, sometimes these people are from Russia, Uh, but in the case of Mr. Gobel, he's not from Russia and in fact uh, uh, his specialty is reading Russian and what he does and so I think is valuable is he uh, reads a lot of information in Russian and then brings it to us here in English-speaking land. Uh, He's done this professionally for many years, uh, including for State Department. Uh, Paul, welcome. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Well, um, you write quite extensively, and I think you're doing an incredibly valuable uh, service to anybody who really wants to understand what is going on um, in in Russia, because you're taking news from Russian news outlets, and you're retelling them, although, of course, you're using your own perspective. But you're doing a service that uh, I don't know if that those kinds of briefings exist for anybody but upper echelon of our intelligence services. So that's kind of cool. Well, it used to be back in the old days, 30 and 40 years ago, that there was an entire organization in the U.S. government that produced uh, between uh, 100 and 150 pages of translation from Russian sources every day. Uh, And it was quite something. Uh, These were the uh, JPRS daily report and people could keep up. Now, of course, there's a lot more information and unfortunately, those that production is not done anymore. Uh, that has a bunch of consequences. The two that worry me the most is first, it means that many people who study Russia don't have good enough Russian to scan it. You know, it's one thing to read something you know you have to read. It's another thing to look through a newspaper or look through a magazine or a book looking for what's important. Uh, the second skill is a very different one, and it's not nearly as widespread. So what that means is an awful lot gets missed. Uh, some things get picked up, uh, but many, many things don't. And so what I try to do with my uh, blog, Window on Eurasia, is to call attention to things that I find interesting and important or insightful as to how uh, Russia is operating. So in that uh, case, when I look at some of the biggest news that are happening in the United States that um, involve Russia, um, that doesn't necessarily mean that that's what uh, the Russian press is going to be writing about as well, or does it? Well, the very most important events, I suppose, are going to be covered uh, admittedly differently in Moscow and in the major U.S. cities. On the other hand, there are lots of important developments uh, in Russia and lots of important developments in the United States, which the media of the older, of the other country doesn't cover. And um, those are usually the kinds of things that are below the radar screen, but that may emerge as something terribly important uh, down the line. I'll give you just one example from this week. Um, there have been a series of methane explosions 
uh, in Siberia and the Russian far north uh, caused by the melting of permafrost. It's now become obvious that a single one of these methane explosions, which lead to craters 60 to 80 meters wide, could wipe out most or all of Russia's natural gas supply from the Yamal Peninsula, and that could have ser terribly serious consequences for major Russian cities and also for Russia's sale of natural gas to Europe. And you mentioned, I believe, in your post that it was uh, something near 89% of Russia's gas that uh, that was in that one, you know. Goes through one narrow place. So it only takes one of these. So while we here may be concerned about Donald Jr. and and those kinds of things, you, you're looking at uh, news that may actually affect us just as much, but may not be covered quite as well. Well, that's what I try to do. I I I figure if somebody else, if I'm certain someone else is going to cover a story, I rarely will write on it. I I only write on. Uh, high-profile stories when I have something addition to add because the Russian pre Russian media or Russian bloggers have put a different take on what happened. I just wrote one just before we began our talk uh, by uh, picking up on a Russian blogger who pointed out that it was wrong to think Hamburg, the summit, was ever going to be a Yalta. The correct way to read what happened there was this was Rapallo that this is a reprise of what happened in 1922 when two outcasts, as far as the Europeans were concerned, got together and made an agreement. That happened between Weimar Germany and Soviet Russia in the spring of 1922. And in a certain sense, the same thing has happened in Hamburg with both Trump and Putin, admittedly for different reasons, being on the outs with the most prominent Europeans. And sometimes when an alliance is made by people who are outsiders, that has enormous consequences. So I thought that was an important insight, which I had not seen in any of the American or other Russian discussions of what occurred at the summit. That, that is indeed an interesting point of view. So let me then ask you in that vein, and I'll remind listeners and viewers that you're watching Rashkin Report. And uh, this is Yuri Rashkin. My guest is uh, Paul Gobble. Do you feel that this, uh, uh, if this was indeed a meeting of outcasts, these are some pretty powerful outcasts, uh, do you feel that uh, threat from Russia towards American democracy in general, or democracy in general, um, is, is a real threat, or is that just two outcasts and uh, the system will absorb them and regurgitate them and everything will be fine, <laughs> maybe one world war later? Well, uh, I think the margin for error at present is perhaps less than we would like it to be. Uh, at the same time, I certainly agree that this, the, these are two very different kinds of outcasts than Weimar Germany and Soviet Russia in 1922. But when people think of themselves as standing outside or against uh, mainstream opinion, which is certainly true of both Putin and um, Trump, that gives them a sense of commonality, which one or the other may exploit. With respect to the bigger question of Russia as a threat uh, to democracy, I think it's important to make, to distinguish two things. One is what Russia may choose to exploit, 
and what second, what Russia may cause. I think that uh, Russia is not a cause for the problems of American democracy, but I think it is certainly true that uh, the Russia of Vladimir Putin is trying to exploit some of those problems. Those are two different things. And um, it, one of the things that's very wrong in our world is the widespread assumption that governments don't, uh, uh, they control things more than they do. In fact, mostly they look for things they can exploit and make use of. And I think Vladimir Putin has certainly done that. I don't believe that he's responsible for Donald Trump, uh, much as I think we have to have investigations as to what in fact did happen last last year. I think what you see is a man who is in a much weaker position than the United than the leadership of the United States, looking for ways that he can exploit uh, things at the margin to benefit his country and himself. Um, that's what leaders do. And uh, it's not that they they take something and turn it 180 degrees. Mostly they'll, they're trying to turn it one degree or two. And if they can do it three, then they feel as if they're great victors. Okay. Well, let's then take a look at some of the important issues that are facing Russia that you see Russian news outlets writing about. Um, you know, there's uh, things such as separatism, which is developing kind of underneath the surface, but but is bubbling up in different regions differently. Uh, there is uh, the response to the general dictatorship of, uh, you know, whether it's authoritarian or totalitarian. You know, it's a fine discussion. I suppose it's still more authoritarian. Uh, but what are, what are the, some of the bigger trends that you see, not necessarily news stories such as the possibility of uh, explosion of 89% of Russian natural gas or making it inaccessible, uh, but some of the broader trends that you see? Well, I think that the, 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 one of the biggest things is this. Um, Russia is a huge country. It's the largest country on earth. It's extremely diverse. And I think it's significant that when you ask the question and you talked about separatism, you, you didn't use the word republic or non-Russian. You use the term region. And I think that there is a growing appreciation in Russia that the biggest threats uh, of regionalism, of uh, separatism, are coming not from non-Russians, but from predominantly ethnic Russian regions who have their own agenda, their own plans, and who see themselves as being left behind or excluded from Moscow. Um, I think that is a major factor. That doesn't mean that someone is going to break off tomorrow. That's not what I'm saying. But that in a very large country, the tensions between the center and the periphery are a key element of politics. And it's one that is almost completely ignored uh, in the Moscow media and is almost and even more ignored in the Western media. Are you saying that uh, that all those movements for separatism in regions are led uh, by native Russians? Yes, I don't think that the, I I think that uh, just as in the United States there are people who identify first as Texans or first as Californians uh, and see Washington as the enemy in one sense or another. So too there are people in Novosibirsk or Omsk or Khabarovsk. Um, who see uh, themselves having interests very different from those in Moscow. 
unfortunately, under Vladimir Putin, who has tried to re-centralize control uh, to a, a degree uh, far greater than any of his recent predecessors, uh, those people feel ex even more excluded, even more mistreated. And I think that right now, if someone asked me to compile a list of the top 10, quote, secessionist threats, okay. uh, seven or eight of them would be would be in ethnic Russian regions, not in non-Russian regions. The reason be, the, being that the non-Russian regions in general, not all, but in general, have been able to extract more resources from the center than the Russian regions have. I mean, our friends in uh, Chechnya are currently getting more money per capita out of Moscow than any Russian region anywhere else in the country. Yeah, and but everybody that's, that's knows the price, that. it's the price of peace, isn't it? I would not want to call what we see in Chechnya peace. Okay. I I think what we see is uh, a, a a a deal between Moscow and Kadyrov in which the one promises minimal loyalty and the other sends whatever money is asked for okay um so interestingly then people who are uh, the other ethnicities not russians who are maybe actually at a, at a much greater would be greater beneficiaries of separatism because maybe they have natural resources on their land that they would benefit more directly from. They are not really worried about secession you're seeing as much. Well, as no, I, 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 I made a relative comment. That is not okay. to say that there aren't people, there aren't non-Russians who would be interested in going their own way. I think uh, the apparent decision of the Kremlin not to extend the Moscow-Kazan power-sharing agreement, at least as being reported these days, uh, means that Tatarstan, which is a major oil-producing area, is going to be more interested, more thinking about making its own way in a different direction. But if you look where most of the natural resources of Russia are, they're either in predominantly Russian areas or in areas which may nominally be non-Russian, as many of the areas of the Russian North, but overwhelmingly ethnic Russian in population. If you look at if you look at the Yamal Peninsula, yes, it's named for someone other than the ethnic Russians, but the ethnic Russians form a huge percentage of the population. And while that's declining because of demographic factors, um, I think that. Uh, uh, Russians are just as interested in protecting their economic well-being. I think one of the reasons that as an American I focus on this is that my country got its start by breaking away from an empire that was led by people who spoke the same language, had the same religion, and had the same notions of legal system. The idea that you have to be speaking a different language, you have to have a different religion, you have a di different culture, uh, otherwise uh, uh, secession or, or revolution or uh, national movements are impossible, I think is, is wrongheaded. I think we have overlearned 1991. I think 1991 led people to conclude that as long as there wasn't ethnic secession, there wasn't any secession, and that's a mistake. I think that uh, there are many regions uh, of Russia uh, that are populated predominantly by ethnic Russians who may form a much more serious challenge to the center. Um, and this, 
it, right now, at least, it doesn't appear to me that the presidential administration, not to speak of Putin uh, only, understands how to cope with that. There are ways to deal, to isolate non-Russians by accusing them of various things. It's much more difficult to do that with ethnic Russians um, in these regional centers because they do speak the same language. They do have the same religion. They do have uh, many of the same cultural values. But not everyone who lives in Yekaterinburg or in Habarovsk thinks that the sun rises and sets only within the ring road around Moscow, uh, as many people in Moscow seem to believe, uh, and that to the extent that Moscow takes and takes from the regions and gives less and less back, uh, I think those people are going to respond, not necessarily by declaring war a la Chechnya, but rather uh, by putting, making demands a smart central government would go a long way to meeting those demands to make sure that everybody was re was reasonably on the same page. A foolish central government would insist on the center uber alles, and that would only make people angrier. You're listening to Rashkin Report, and uh, this is 91.7 FM, WSUW, The Edge in Whitewater, Wisconsin. Uh, this is Yuri Rashkin, and my guest today is Paul Gobble, a uh, blogger and former uh, State Department um, analyst, among many other things, editor of books and such. And we're speaking about, um, I guess at this point, some of the broader trends of what is happening in Russia while we're uh, at the same time, you know, can't avoid but pay some attention to the biggest stories that are, that are breaking with, uh, with the Trump administration. It, at the same time, the topic is so much broader uh, because the country itself, uh, Russia in this case, is experiencing lots of different adversities. Um, and the issue of nationalism is something that I wanted to touch on next uh, since we kind of got there. Um, in Russia, nationalist movements are viewed generally as very extremist movements and uh, something that uh, people, uh, you know, of Jewish background, for instance, consider to be a good thing that the government steps in and, and usually quashes them. Um, but at the same time, I mean, isn't, isn't there a room for like a peaceful expression of nationalism with all these ethnic Russians running around, or is it just a means of manipulation? Well, I think that I think that uh, there's such a thing as healthy nationalism, just as there's an unhealthy kind. And I think that you can see uh, sometimes when uh, the Russian government moves against extreme Russian nationalists, uh, I can only celebrate the fact some of those people have truly awful views. Right. Uh, we've seen um, in recent days, large number or recent weeks, large numbers of what most people would call extreme Russian nationalists, arrested, charged. Some of them have fled the country. Um, the problem, of course, is that we've seen some Russian, we've seen some actions that those people would probably celebrate taken by people who aren't being arrested, but who are officials of the regime. Uh, they, they, they ban, the attempts to ban the film Matilda, the, the more successful attempts uh, to ban uh, a ballet on Nureyev, under the you know anti-gay propaganda measures, which are coming out of the government and out of the Russian Orthodox Church, um, uh, those those actions don't cease to be 
um, unhealthy nationalists just because the people who articulate them don't call themselves Russian nationalists. Uh, I, that that I think seems it's... to matter a lot, doesn't it? When when people say uh, power in Russia to Russians, then that's that's bad. But when they cancel a ballet because uh, the the hero, the protagonist is a gay ballet uh, dancer, star, amazing, uh, you know, dancer, mm -hmm. but but. Not not the traditional sexuality. Uh, that's uh, expression. Well, how is that really even nationalism? Well, I guess because well, it comes from Russian Church. I this com this comes from the Russian Orthodox Church. I mean, uh, now we could go on for a very long time as to what's nationalist and what isn't. Right. I, I'm only saying that if you look at the agenda of some of the people who are routinely described as extremist Russian nationalists, you'll find that what they want is includes a lot of things that in fact are being done by the regime. Now that doesn't, that doesn't mean that all the motivations are always the same, but it's simply harder to draw the line. I believe that every people should feel good about itself. But that requires not only feeling good about oneself, but also being willing to admit some of the shortcomings and failings uh, that that uh, that one's people has. I mean, I, my, I operate on the assumption that the perhaps the greatest insight for talking about any country came from the judge de Mandelstam, who said that happy is that country in which the despicable will at least be despised. Uh, I think that. Um, a country that can look at its past, look at its present, and admit that there are things to be proud of and things that should also be condemned is a much stronger and better place than a country that assumes that the only thing you can do is celebrate its past. I find it, I find it very objectionable, for example, to celebrate Joseph Stalin and to, and to fail to criticize his mass murder of the Russian people and all the Soviet peoples. I mean, this man was a horrible dictator, but we have now a view among many people in Russia that he should be celebrated. And if there were problems, they were minor because he won the war. Well, let's be honest. Did Stalin play a major role in defeating Hitler? Absolutely. Did Stalin do terrible things to his own people and to others? Absolutely. We should be mature enough to be able to admit both. What disturbs me is when one confronts people who refuse to accept the idea that there is, that both are true, that both the good and the bad is true. And maybe that's one of the ways we could describe the difference between healthy and unhealthy nationalism. A healthy nationalism would, would, would admit that in one's own nation's past, there have been bad pages as well as good ones. And an unhealthy nationalism is one that insists whatever we did is right. And there are people in many countries that fall in both of those categories. So it's, it's more of a, if you're going to be defensive about everything, then I don't think you'd make a good leader. And if one would, I certainly agree. Yes, okay. I certainly agree. I'm, I'm trying to see a trend there and I, I think it's very clear. Um, Paul, uh, 
you are you know enjoying uh, the fruits and benefits of living in 21st century and utilizing internet as much as anyone um, can you share some of the sources that you feel are uh, w where you get your information even if it's in Russian but some of the websites that maybe uh, you consider to be more relevant um, as well as uh, you know who are the people that you consider to be some of the sources that you go to for the end you follow well, I, I find the uh, uh, news, the newspaper Business Gazeta from Kazan, which is businessgazeta-gazeta.ru, uh, useful every day. There are always fascinating things there. I find ura.ru, which is a Urals uh, news agency. I find kafkazuzel.com, uh, which is based in the North Caucasus, very valuable. I, of course, use things like Echo Moskvi and Grani. But there are a large number of sites uh, that are not used. I find Tuva.ru extremely interesting. I find, um, you know, there, there is some, one of the things one learns in studying ethnicity is that people can often talk about important issues when the people who are involved are considered unimportant and they can't talk about those issues when the people involved are considered important. So sometimes you learn a lot more about even the largest nations by examining the smallest ones. So the websites that are devoted to particular ethnic groups, I would also recommend two um, Russian Orthodox sites, um, uh, Rusk. Uh, Rusklinia and Rusk.com, which is the other, the older uh, Russian line um, thing, because they are aggregators. Another aggregator that's extremely good is Centralasia.ru, which looks at all of Central Asia and in a very large sense uh, and gathers together every day between 30 and 50 uh, interesting articles about Central Asia, Afghanistan, and China. So those are some of the ones that I go to. I have a list uh, of about 200 that I go through each morning. It now takes me about uh, two and a half to three hours to go through those. Uh, as I always tell people, writing them up is not hard. Finding them is because you have to look at an awful lot um, that isn't worth reading. I mean, you go through you know, one after another and there's nothing there. And then finally you'll hit one and there'll be five things that really deserve to be written. And I have a document that I compile each day, look, listing all the things that I find interesting. And then out of that, I select four or five that I have the time to write up. Well, that's certainly as a good list. And this is one of the values, incredible values that you offer is that uh, you, you know you're putting together this blog and you're allowing others to take advantage of your expertise um, since you're an expert on ethnicities in russia something that i continuously experience uh, uh, confusion with when i when i see uh, americans around me is the confusion between being jewish as a jewish religion and jewish as a jewish ethnicity and mm -hmm. uh, how do you you know what, what's your explanation to people that, that are confused about this well i would say that there are there are Jews who are only religious, there are Jews who are only ethnic, and there are Jews who are both ethnic and religious. You've got at least three categories out there. I mean, in, in, in Tsarist times, 
the um, link between religion and nationality was clearer because of the pale of settlement. Um, you know, if you were Jewish, you spoke, you probably spoke Yiddish, uh, you identified with the Jewish community, not always, but mostly. Uh, in Soviet times, uh, being religious was not a good thing, but people still knew you were Jewish, even if you thought, didn't stress it because the Soviets didn't treat Jews very well in a number of times. Um, I think that uh, it's always difficult. Uh, it's, it's not an either or situation. Uh, I know lots of people uh, who would be in the category Jewish uh, from uh, Russia, the Russian area who are religious and lots who aren't uh, and lots who are very religious but don't identify very much with the community as an ethnic community. So uh, you've got a big spread here. It's not it's not easy. It, it, not an easy thing. Uh, people want the world to be simpler and and uh, easier to understand than it ever is. Thanks for complicating this a little bit more. Um, Absolutely. <laughs> Paul, you have experience of, uh, you, have, you were a special advisor to Secretary Baker. Mm -hmm. um, how do you feel, what would his response be at this point? And, uh, you know, imagining him, you know, let, let's say, um, let's say Trump is gone. Let's say, this, uh, you know, there's a, Republicans are cleaning, you know, Republicans are dealing with the mess because it's going to fall to the Republicans to deal with it on, at least until 2018. Right. Um, what what do you think are likely you know because I think there's some pe people especially in Russia who see all of this uh, warm up in relations on such you know dangerous grounds to play badly for Russia long term. Uh, well, I think that's a good. I think that's a wise a wise thought, and I think that uh, uh, from Russia's point of view, someone like Donald Trump is a much bigger problem. Uh, for them than some of the people who were identified as, quote, Russophobes, um, because uh, a country like Russia in dealing with the rest of the world, if it wants to be unpredictable, to make its way in the world, has to live in a world where almost everyone else is predictable. And if you've got several unpredictable people out there, uh, they are high risks and great dangers. And I think that the biggest thing that if I were a Russian looking out at, at this administration, I would be thinking is, what will they do next? You know, uh, the kinds of things that Donald Trump said in Warsaw were very different than the kinds of things Donald Trump said in Hamburg the next day. Which ones are the basis he's going to act on? And are we going to hear something completely different the next day? Um, in a world which where people have access to some of these horrific weapons, you want predictability because if you don't have predictability, someone will make a big mistake. And when they make a mistake, then the consequences for uh, the, pe the populations can be very serious indeed. So if the Trump administration, for whatever reason, has to exit the White House and we have either President Pence or President Ryan, or I don't know what. Um, how do you see, uh, do, do you see that uh, the comeback at Russia will be aggressive, or, or will it not be aggressive until, let's say, Democrats have some middle I power? Think, I think the 
what you if if Trump departs, and if it's that a big happens, if. it's like big big if, if. Right. right, and if um, uh, Vice President Pence succeeds, what I would expect is the following: first, uh, initially, uh, there would be a uh, just keep everything where it is, not sh- no big changes. There would be an effort to emphasize uh, continuity and stability. And that would represent a major departure from Trump's approach, which is unpredictability is the basis of my policies. And I think that, quite frankly, uh, a Russian government would find uh, dealing with a President Pence harder uh, in some ways, but easier in others. Harder in that I think whatever Washington announced uh, would more likely stay in place no matter what Moscow did. On the other hand, the fact that Washington is would be predict much more predictable in those cases would allow Russia to exploit its own in unpredictability um, more fully than it can now. I think Trump believes that his unpredictability keeps everyone else from being unpredictable because they're afraid. Um, I think he's wrong. I think that um, uh, when some, when one side becomes too unpredictable, uh, there tends to provoke uh, unpredictability on the other side. I think in some ways, Trump's unpredictability is a response to a world which is where it seems to many people in the United States, other leaders are being unpredictable and therefore we ought to be that way too. I think that's a mistake as somebody who knows something about nuclear weapons and what they can do. I don't want the world to be an unpredictable place where things can go really, really wrong because the costs of that are very great indeed. Paul Gobble, uh, blogger, former analyst for State Department. Uh, Thank you so much for being on the program. If you just wanted to mention uh, your blog where people can find you and read more about what's going on, that would be great. And thank Thank you so much. Well, my pleasure. Uh, My blog is window on Eurasia 2, all one word, dot blogspot dot com. Thank you for having me. Thank you. You're listening to 91.7 FM, WSUW in Whitewater, Wisconsin. listening to Rashkin Report.